This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, we know all about the 1970 Knicks. What about 73? Before we get to the show, I want to tell you guys about Fast Break Breakfast. It's a fellow Harvard Proxism Network podcast. If you watch League Pass every night but aren't listening to Fast Break Breakfast, you are missing out. It's what happens when you get two musicians and a comic who are overeducated, underemployed, but share an obsession about the NBA, 90s movies, and conspiracy theories. So make sure you subscribe to Fast Break Breakfast, a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. All right, I am Jason, and we are back talking about more basketball mysteries of the 1970s. I am joined once again by Raphael of the NBA Trades uh, blog, podcast, and uh, Twitter account. You had a great episode recently talking to David Steele, who covered the mid-90s Golden State Warriors and getting into their struggles and the Latrell Spiro situation. You do a great job of finding really good guests for the podcast and kind of a mix of different you know, pro- professional perspectives and fan perspectives, but they're, they, they've all been really good hits. So appreciate what you uh, bring to the table. I, your your uh, site helps me do a lot of research on, uh, on things when I'm looking into uh, things for shows. So I appreciate that as a resource and appreciate you bringing your expertise to 70s, uh, the New York Knicks. We're going to uh, talk about, we're going to kind of overview the key players through that, uh, the, the, the dynasty, if you want to call it that they had from you know, basically uh you know 69 to 74 where they were you know a, a, a pretty good team to to title contender uh type play as they uh went but you know this is obviously one of the most heavily mythologized teams um really made the uh nba helped really um bring a lot of popularity to the nba um even though the 70s are kind of considered a a nadir at least the early 70s you know the the league was you know a little bit more on the minds of people um it did help it helped get a lot of coverage that they hadn't gotten before uh the 1970 finals with you know la versus new york was a big deal um and you know you know bob ryan called it you know the the most important uh, finals in nba history in terms of you know kind of bringing popularity to the league which you know um says a lot i think um they won two nba titles and reached three finals in five seasons the 1970 team was one of the most dominant NBA teams of the uh, decade top 20 ever in srs the uh, basketball reference um rating system for a team strength harvey Ayrton, who wrote a great uh book when the garden was eaten which was also made into a 30 for 30 documentary he, he wrote in a very chaotic time in the country and certainly in new york city the garden was a place where you had people from the outer boroughs and you had very wealthy people from manhattan you had people from harlem who were very involved with the team the knicks were professional basketball they were centered right in the heart of the city in midtown and i do believe it was sort of a unifying experience for the city now you are a Knicks fan. You're not old enough of, by far to remember this team, but obviously you are part of that fan base. You're part of that, you know, know of that mythology, and that's part of you know, kind of embedded into Knicks fandom. How, how do you feel about um, this team and the legend that it's been created for in these you know past almost fifty years? Well, it's a really special team. I think they sort of encompass everything from t- teamwork team chemistry and not always they might they had great players obviously but they never had like the best player you know like a jerry west or whatever but um i think that it reflects uh, and 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 like the relationship between all of them i mean it for some reason that's sort of something that appeals to a lot of people is just 
you see even with Phil getting hired, Phil Jackson getting hired by the Knicks to run, all of them are always there like at the game. So even though the Knicks are terrible now, I think to people it's still amazing to see that, you know, Phil still talks with uh, Clyde, still talks with Willis Reed, still talks with Bill Bradley. They all still have great a great relationship. And so I think the idea of like people getting along and working together for one common goal always sort of resonates with, with people, especially when you win a championship. I think it, it creates a perfect narrative. So it, it, I think that's why people really gravitate towards them. And then also the bottom line is just the Knicks have been awful the past, like, especially the past 15 years. So it's really tough for, for um, I guess, you know, like Knicks fans to really deal with the losing and so this is that this that stretch of like six years where they're always competing for a title or they're always like sort of at least a fringe contender i mean they, they won two championships were in the conference finals a bunch of times too so it i think for people it's tough to to see that this franchise hasn't really regrouped from the obviously the 90s era of patrick ewing where they were a a, a contender but you know, this this is the only time they've won championships. So, for for a franchise that doesn't really have much success, when you think about it, especially considering the Knicks have been around longer than most NBA franchises, it's uh, it there's not a lot to be happy about, or a lot to celebrate. So when when you win a championship, it's such an important thing. And so, uh, the fact that these two that those two rings matter so much is just reflective of where the Knicks have been as a franchise especially over the past you know 15 years where they haven't won so it's uh i think people look back fondly at it because it's there's not a lot to look back fondly at like the celtics who have different eras of success that you know people can constantly look back because they've won so many championships you know they obviously had that blend of amazing talent those you guys who had uh, complementary skills and just kind of fit with each other you know uh frazier Reed, DeBusher, Bradley, Dick Barnett, you know, Phil Jackson, Red Holzman, the coach. I mean, all those guys were um, characters in the best sense. They came from different backgrounds, uh, different racial mix, different, uh, you know, um, different parts of the country, you know, different political beliefs. They all, um, you know, I, I think the combination of those personalities and how the talent fit on the floor, obviously, um, you know, made them great and made them interesting to mythologize. I mean, obviously, the, a big part of it is it happened in New York, which is you know the place where, uh, other than Los Angeles, the place where dreams are built, and you know many of our myths are built. Um, but they, you know, they had they, they did have a special element to them. I mean, they they had a very smart, appreciative crowd. They actually popularized the the defense chant. Um, there were thirteen books written about them. They were stars of Madison Avenue. They had the New York media. They basically probably the first basketball team that were also rock stars. So, um, I do think there is a genuine, and you know these things are never fair. So it's a it's a little bit of sour grapes, but I do think there is a genuine like, you know they didn't really accomplish that much in terms of NBA history. Like they're the mythology is greater than the actual accomplishments. But you know they were a special team. You, know, you don't always get the amount of credit that you deserve. I'm using air quotes because you can't see me, obviously, because it's a podcast, but I'm using air quotes for deserve. But, um, you know, they, they were a great team and they were great for this. They were you know, really an important team for the sport at that time, which was, you know, struggling to get a foothold and, and, and helped gain some gains that would later, you know, be capitalized on by the Showtime Lakers and the, you know, the other teams that would rocket, you know, basketball into the stratosphere in the in the 80s and beyond. You're right. Like, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, like the two championships and, and it's not that it, you're, you're right in the sense that it isn't like a big accomplishment um, compared to other uh, franchises success or, or different eras of, you know, if you're comparing them to the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, like, no, <laughs> she said it's it's New York City. And, and it's always been said that if you win in New York, it's like the biggest thing ever. And you really can do whatever you want. It's like, you know, to move, not to move aside to another sport, but like the Yankees, like Derek Jeter can do no wrong because he's won all the, all of these championships here. And so it's like, you know, when you win in New York, it's like you're going to get a lot of coverage and you're going to get a lot of attention. And usually, especially with winning, it's positive attention. And so, you know, 
people are, are going to write a lot. You're going to get a lot of books written about you. You're going to get a lot of uh, attention. And the Knicks definitely, I mean, <laughs> they relished in it. Uh, and, I, and I think that they're, they're looked at as one of the, the, the greater teams in, in, uh, in league history just because I think the, the, the factor of being in New York City definitely has amplified it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so looking at kind of the, the, the key players for the team, um, I think first is, um, or you could go kind of 1A, 1B here, but I, I would say Walt Frazier, probably the, the best player overall, probably the genuine, like, you know, during the time in which they were, you know, a good team, a great team from 69 to 74, probably the best point guard in the league. I mean, he averaged 20.8 points per game, 6.6 rebounds per game, 6.9 assists per game, and had a .206 win for 48, which is really great. Um, I, I do think he gets lost a little bit in terms of the great point guards of all time. I mean, I, I think he's just a a tier below your magics and Oscar Robertson's and absolute best of the best point guards. I mean, he was a a terrific floor general, amazing, great defender who was very fast with his hands, but also would be very crafty and would sometimes save his steals for key moments. Um, and, you know, not to mention, you know, being a fashion icon, being the first NBA player to have a, a shoe named after him, uh, had the Clyde by Puma. Um, and really, you know, helped lead the team. Uh, Seven-time all-defense first team. Uh, was all-NBA first team four times and second team two times during that time. So uh, hard to say enough about him. Flashy was just, you've got a lot of attention for the team. Obviously, still gets a lot of attention for the team being the uh, broadcaster and uh, having the uh, colorful phraseology that he's uh, known so well for. Oh, yeah. that's uh, I think that's his, the most appealing thing about him right now. <laughs> Um, his uh, his uh, classic rhyming, but yeah, I think you know he does get overlooked a little bit when you think about the best point guards in the in like league history, and I mean he was he was their best best player, especially like being the younger part of the duo. Um, yeah, he definitely. I don't know, and it's funny because I don't think people really have a defined place for him in like league history. Like like you said, I think he is a little bit below. Or people view him as a little bit below that uh, rung of like the top point guards, but I think I don't know. It's tough. He was a great all around. I think that's the thing that stands out about him is that he was a great all around player. He's one of the best defensive point guards of all time, and um, but he could also score. and And obviously, that game in nineteen seventy is what stands out. That game seven, and so you know he uh, he's had his 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 moments and. Um, yeah, he's one of the. It, it's tough. I think it, it's hard. You know, it's hard to compare him, especially to today's point guard. But I think he really is. He really is one of the top point guards of all time. I think you know maybe people should over to. I think he maybe he does get people do overlook him a little bit. So I agree with that. Yeah, I mean he's mentioned. He's obviously considered great, but I I think the degree of greatness and like what made him effective compared to some of the other point guards, I think it's lost a little bit in in terms of like he had a lot of mouths to feed. I mean like. The the Knicks weren't a um, like they didn't have one player who needed a lot, but they had a lot of players who needed to be fed, you know, like a medium amount. And that's a tricky balance to make sure all those guys are getting kind of like the right amount. You know, um, Reed was averaging 18.3 points per game dur during this time. DeBush was averaging 16 points per game. Bradley was adding, uh, averaging 14. Dick Barnett was averaging 13.4. I mean, you start adding those up and, you know, you, you start introducing guys later uh, that we're going to talk about, Earl Monroe and Jerry Lucas. I mean, um, keeping all those guys happy, I think, is a – and, you know, obviously, you know, they were a, a team that was willing to pass. So he wasn't the only guy, you know, setting everything up. But I, I still think that um, you would be kind of the, the prime – guy responsible for that which everyone has kind of agreed with that in fact willis reed just said you know it's clyde's ball he lets he just lets us play with it once in a while um i think that you know he um i, I think he deserves a lot of credit for that yeah i think so too i think um yeah they he, he it's a lot of responsibility especially when you're such a deep team and you like you said you have to get so the ball to so many different guys to score um yeah, and he did a good job, especially he was younger than a lot of them. So I think that also is, you know, it's harder, too, when you're younger and you have to, like, tell these vets 
what they should be doing because you're playing with Dave DeBusher, who's a veteran, who played with Detroit for so long, and uh, Willis Reed, who's a veteran. And so I bet that also had to be hard. So you have to take some kind of like leadership role, especially like, you know, I, 23, 24, and you have to be like the guy and tell people where they have to go. Yeah, which is obviously incredibly difficult to, to do. Uh, by the way, I, I'm going to mention a book for each of the main players because I because uh, you know so many books you might as well bring them up. And uh, and and Clyde's main book is uh, Rock and Steady: A Guide to Basketball and Cool, which was re-released a few years ago. A highly recommended book. It's a uh, it, it's a great one. He he wrote some others as well, but that's sort of the the, the if you want to get the Clyde experience, I feel like that's the uh, one that you want to um to to do. So one B player that we talk about, and, and maybe even more famous in a way because of you know his uh, obviously the uh, the 1970 moment which we'll talk about um uh you know walking on the court after the injury uh willis reed uh the captain of the team uh provided a lot of leadership um incredibly competitive and hard-working player was at one time all nba first team four time on the second team um and uh and harvey Ayrton, you know t- t- talked about him as a guy who was always con- concerned about the welfare of the players like to room with one of the rookies and talked about how he would loan money to his teammates in immediate disputes with their girlfriends and was generally a very giving guy. There's a, a story um, that's talked about in his book and also in the documentary about a uh, an issue that he had with Cassie Russell where um, uh, Cassie Russell had, you know, been racially profiled while he was in Michigan and then you know he had while he had stopped and he'd been stopped by the police and been harassed and so he drove to uh, practice um, later that day or the next day and was fuming about it and basically was beating up on all the white players and eventually Willis Reed you know got in his face and then um, and then Russell uh, called him an Uncle Tom and obviously just enraged Reed you know basically got in his face and said you know we can't have this kind of thing eventually he was able to kind of deal with that by confronting it but but not letting it escalate to a point where it became you know a, a huge issue for the team and that was kind of a key moment in them being able to you know bond together in an even deeper way and led to them you know uh being a you know um having the success that they had and he was i mean he's the captain he's the leader of the team and uh he had a really big role on the Knicks, and I think that's sort of just the thing is that. Uh, also, I think the amazing thing was he was so undersized as a center, as a six nine, two hundred thirty five pound center. Yeah, I mean he was bulky, but he wasn't that tall. Yeah, so he had a lot to to you know guard some of the best centers like Will Chamberlain and you know Kareem. Like that's a, a really two to six foot nine guy. Yeah, and part of what made him effective is he had a, a good enough, you know, outside shot that he was able to draw a lot of the big men out, um, which, you know, was able to kind of keep him on the floor and offense. I mean, he, he had a pretty good inside game, too, but um, that was one advantage he had over most of the centers that he was facing is that he could, you know, he could he could shoot from the outside. And, you know, was was big enough and strong enough to defend, you know, most of the most of the bigger guys okay. Um, and obviously they had, a good, they had a good defensive system that helped as well. So by this point, he is in his he's in his early 30s, but he's been dealing with a, a bunch of injuries already. Um, in 72, he had um, only played a handful of games because of injury. Um, he did play in 73. He did play in 69 games, but he averaged only 11 points. He was sharing a lot of time with Jerry Lucas. And then in 74, he retired after playing not only 19 games. So it was his 10th year. So uh, so the injuries really caught up with him, which, which kind of makes – kind of adds a little bit to his – with different sort of uh, tinge on, you know, what happened in uh, the 1970 finals with, you know, injuring his knee and taking all the injections to to, to go out there and to make it work. I mean, that was a situation where, you know, his health was starting to deteriorate and, um, you know, going out there may have been something that, you know, he had to sacrifice, you know, future years in his career to be able to do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, he just, I think especially like at the end, it was, it was, I, from what I've read and like you know just certain things that uh, by the end he you know luckily Jerry Lucas stepped in and became a big part of the, the team after the trade with Cassie Russell but um, yeah like he really did and maybe some of that is like his size like you know uh, led him to be more susceptible to injuries I don't know that's sort of that's unfair because I don't know if it's true or not but still you know his career sort of faded really not really quickly but sort in a way sort of like yeah. 
nowhere. He started dealing with a lot of injuries. Yeah, um, and now, you know, shorter careers were, were still more common then, so, I mean, it wasn't necessarily that uncommon for a guy to retire around 32 or so, but yes, um, it, it is a shorter career than, you know, where you're definitely used to today, and even by the standards of the day, I mean, it was fairly short. I mean, he retired one year after he was finals MVP, so that, you know, that, that, that tells you something right there. Um, by the way, his book was A Will to Win, The Comeback Year, which is the year that he, uh, talking about the 73 season when he you know came back from injury and, and uh, had a pretty successful season. Um, and then next we have Dave DeBusher, who um, was power forward, a um, six-time all-defensive first team. Um, and he had sort of an interesting start to things. He actually played a professional baseball with the – he was a pitcher with the Chicago White Sox. Then he went to the NBA, played for the Pistons, and at the age of 23 was actually the player coach of the team, which <laughs> says something about the Pistons at that point, um, that uh, <laughs> the organization and you know what they had that a 23-year-old was going to be the, uh, the player coach of the team. But uh, he spent a few years with the uh, Pistons, and then eventually um, – in 69 he was traded to the um to the knicks for walt bellamy um and bellamy was you know w was the standout center but it already kind of bounced around to quite a few different teams and that move really enabled uh the knicks either the pieces kind of really fell together once to busher joined the team he complimented complimented reed a lot better reed was a lot better playing center um, DeBusher brought in just, you know, the, the right, you know, like I said, tough-minded defense that they needed and just kind of shored everything up, brought in leadership, um, and, you know, kind of made everything – took what was mostly a younger, inexperienced team at that point and took them to a – you know, took them to a new level and added some, um, you know, added some veteran know-how for a lack of – to, to use a cliche. Oh, yeah, and he was a, a really – He's just a great all-around player, I think. And, and like what you said, the player coach thing was uh, <laughs> really interesting, especially at such a young age. I think that's the the most like intriguing part of that is just the, the yeah. coaches, especially we see it like with veterans, guys who are, or we saw it with veterans, guys who are like in their thirties, mid thirties, end of their careers. But to be that young and to have that responsibility is, says a lot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's that's a strange one. Um, yeah, because you're right. Their player coaches were still pretty common, but they were usually you know guys who were about thirty or older. So um, he was very close with Bill Bradley on and off the court. Um, he retired in '74. Then he became the GM of the Nets, defecting the ABA, and then he became the ABA commissioner. Actually, helped the uh, with the NBA ABA merger. And then was uh, the Knicks GM in the in the eighties, uh, drafting uh, Patrick Ewing, uh, with most notably. Uh, I think a lot of people know that, uh, have seen that clip of him like being elated once the, it's revealed that the uh, the Knicks are going to get the uh, you know the number one pick in the first draft lottery. So, um, and his book was The Open Man: A Championship Diary. And then, last but not least, um, Bill Bradley, who was a uh, small forward. He um, didn't really – he and DeBusher, their stats don't necessarily stand out, especially the advanced stats for them. Um, like, DeBusher had a .105 winters of 48, which is just kind of right about average, and Bill Bradley had a, a – as a point zero nine eight, which is even below average. Um, now I think there's a lot of evidence that, that they um, contribute in ways that necessarily don't necessarily show up in their production, but it's just sort of interesting that given the reputation that the stats don't necessarily um, match up with that. But Bradley was known as a guy, you know, moving without the ball, able to know exactly where he needed to be on the court and able to kind of help, you know, make sure every, kind of everything was in its place and at the right rhythm and, and, and able to do that. But, you know, he came in, he was an incredibly hyped college player at Princeton, actually had a rivalry with his with later teammate, Cassie Russell, which would kind of continue on um, as they were players in um, the Knicks. Uh, Russell was the starter when Bradley came along, and Bradley eventually kind of replaced him as the starter, even though people thought Russell was the better one-on-one -on -one player, but thought that Russell, in terms of the team, fit better on the bench. But he was you know, really this great white hope, which he a role that he definitely was uncomfortable with. But when he came in, he got money comparable to Russell, uh, to to Bill Russell, Russell and Will Chamberlain. 
and um, had famously studied at Oxford before, um, after coming from Princeton, actually played a year in Europe uh, basketball before, you know, joining the Knicks a couple years after he was drafted. Of course, famous later for his uh, political career running. He was a U.S. senator from New Jersey for uh, for more than 20 years, ran for president in 2000, coming close to uh, being the nominee but losing to Al Gore. Um, and his book is Life on the Run from 1976. But yeah, but Bradley, he, he was booed initially for when he came to the Knicks. He definitely was not considered a huge disappointment. And then once the Busher got there, the team started winning and everything clicked and the and the cheers came. And he's that classic, I guess, you know, like that that quality role player who, um, like, and you were talking about his stats, uh, not, not speaking to uh, maybe his contributions that like if, if the team's not as great then he's not going to look as great but then when the team is a contender then he's going to look a lot better so I guess he was that kind of player um, you know when he was playing for the Knicks uh, I guess he's the Robert Ory before <laughs> Robert Ory <laughs> without the clutch shots and everything or the notable clutch shots that uh, gather all the attention but um yeah, like, you know, he's a, another really solid player. They had a lot of really good players who could just do a little bit of everything. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the other notable ones, um, we'll, we'll get to Monroe and Lucas a little bit later, but uh, Dick Barnett, who was a shooting guard, who he had he was older at this point. He was, he was actually close to his late 30s by the end of this run, and um, he had played everywhere. He was known for kind of his famous, uh, he was left-hander, known for his famous sort of fallback baby fadeaway jumper. Um, and was a uh, was a very good player, colorful, another colorful personality there. Um, and then Phil Jackson, of course, who I, I think everyone's pretty uh, familiar with. Um, and uh, he had actually missed out. He was with the team in 70 for the title, but had missed out on that because of the injury. So 73 obviously had an extra um, motivation for him. And then, you know, Coach Red Holzman, he had come in in, uh, in 68, um and brought like a a lot of more discipline was fiery and defensive minded it, it also had scouted and drafted most of the players so he knew them very well he knew kind of what they were capable of and had kind of a vision for how they fit together and that really worked out very well for uh them and, and even though they didn't get along his approach to coaching reminded me a lot of red arbach uh, in terms of being kind of a guy who tried to treat his players like adults, empower his players and not necessarily, I mean, he would be fiery, but he wouldn't necessarily be like, you know, my way or the highway. He would try to, you know, kind of be more um, collaborative with his players. Yeah. I heard about that too, especially like with, from like Phil, Phil talked a lot about it, him in different like interviews and sort of sounded like he had a big role in sort of like how he helped Phil Jackson approach the coaching players and, I don't know. It's an interesting uh, route to go, and it obviously worked because the Knicks uh, had a lot of unique personalities. But and he knew and he knew how to uh, work with them and uh, work towards that one common goal. Absolutely, they were pretty good in '69. They were uh, 54 wins, fourth in the league. They actually led the league in SRS, um, but it was close between them and Baltimore and um, a couple of other teams. The, the Celtics and the Lakers all, had, you know, were, were similar quality teams that year. Uh, but they they lost to the Celtics in the Eastern Division Finals, four games to two. This was the final year for Bill Russell um, before he retired. So the the end of that 11 titles in 13 years dynasty. Uh, but better things were to come for them. In fact, in the next season, uh, 1970, they were 16-22, first in the league, first in uh, SRS. And they, uh, they beat the Lakers 4-3 to in the finals, set a record uh, 18-game uh, winning streak that season. Um, you know, we, we, we've, done, uh, we've done other episodes on these finals um, and other shows, so we don't need to get into every detail necessarily. But obviously, you know, you being the Knicks fan um, – uh, before we get you know deeper into '73, what do the '70s Finals mean to you, especially the you know the the, the Game Seven dramatics? Well, this is the first championship in franchise history. I think that's a big deal, and I think it's the the the, the situation just uh, was like set up perfect. Like it's the perfect story. So it's just the you know you're tied to to uh, he get Willis Reed gets hurt and. Um, he has a torn muscle in his leg, and they, they win game five, get blown out in game six in Los Angeles. And in game seven, it's like everything's going against them, like the idea without your best player, or, you know, whatever you want, second best player. 
But, um, you know, he comes out, even though he probably isn't expected to play. And he, like, everybody responds to him coming out and hitting two, he hits two jump shots uh, early on in, like, the first few possessions. And he comes out eventually and doesn't play the rest of the game. And they end up winning, like, rather easily. While Clyde Frazier has that amazing Game 7, it's, like, one of the best uh, Game 7 performances in league history. And the fact that they were able to do that and, you know, miss Willis-Reed for pretty much, you know, three games or, you know, two and a half, whatever you want to say, uh, really just, it's the perfect story. I think that's what stands out about it the most. Yeah, and one thing that's not really talked about is the the Game 5 comeback. I mean, they were down uh, 16 points at one point and were able to, you know, rally with some good bench play. Um, you know, it was kind of the backup bigs who were able to take it to Wilt and able to, like, guys like... Uh, like Nate Bowman and uh, Bill Hoskett, not not you know obviously not not big names, but they were able to key that comeback. Um, you know, and the Knicks also won Game Three despite uh, Jerry West having that sixty foot shot that tied the game at the buzzer. So, I mean, the the, the Game Seven game itself was not you know they, they they won that by a huge blow, but they you know won two very close you know they had clutch performances in two very close games that they could have easily lost and were able to you know pull out a championship and set the stage for what happened in game seven because of that so um you know th- those are kind of you know a little bit forgotten um memories of that season but absolutely um you know um deserve to be remembered yeah i agree it's a, a big moment in franchise history and um and then Reed that year uh, was the MVP of the All-Star Game, the the season and the finals, the uh, the first player to ever do that. Of course, this was only the second year for the finals MVP, so not many opportunities to do so, but still an impressive um, accomplishment. Um, so the 71 season, they are 52-30, and 30, which is second in the league, but is way behind the 66-win Bucks. Um, their uh, SRS is third in the league out of 17 teams. There were three teams added in expansion this year. And they were surprised in the Eastern Conference Finals. They lost to the uh, Baltimore Bullets, um, Earl Monroe and Wes Unseld um, leading that team. Jack Maron also uh, an important part of the team. So, um, you know that that uh, that the Bullets team was only um, they're forty two and forty as as a matter of fact. So that was a that was a big surprise. That uh, Fred Carter also on that team, and Gus Johnson as well. So um, they had good players. Not really sure why they only ended up winning. Um, they seemed like the team that should have won more games than they did. Uh, Kevin Locker on there too. So you know they they had six pretty good um, you know named players on that team. So I don't know if it was injuries or um, or just you know they they just picked the right time to uh, to click. But the uh, the bullets uh, they went to the finals, but then they ended up getting smashed by the uh, Bucks anyway. Um, uh, they were swept in that series. So. Um, then the 72 season, the, uh, and what's kind of fortunate for the uh, Knicks and what's not really talked about is the Bucks ended up moving, uh, actually they did in 71. So after 1970, they, they beat the Bucks during the uh, playoffs. Kareem, uh, was his rookie year. And then the second season they added Oscar Robertson, but then the team moved West. So they only had to be in the same conference with the Bucks for one year. And it'll be interesting given the powerhouse that the Bucks turned into, and what a difficult time they had battling a almost equal powerhouse in the Lakers, how things would have been different if the Bucks had somehow ended up staying in the East and how that would have changed the Knicks' fortunes. Yeah, that I know that actually when you think about it, that is sort of crazy. It could have affected a lot in terms of like both, you know, like, like where the Knicks would have ended up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because I mean, certainly the Knicks could have beaten the Bucks in a you know they could have upset them in a playoff series, but any of those you know next uh, three or four seasons, they are definitely going to be the underdog. Would be have been the underdog in any of those series because the the Bucks are routinely winning sixty games every year, and like you know seventy one and seventy two, they had you know two of the top five SRS seasons of all time. So, but the history worked out well, better for the Knicks. They ended up um, um, making the finals again in seventy two. They were. Uh, in the regular season, they were 48-34, and 34, which was 7th in the league. They were 6th in SRS. They ended up losing to the Lakers in the finals. Lakers that year won 69 games. And I, and I talked to Sean Fury in a previous podcast talking about the uh, Lakers side of things. 
During the offseason in 71, uh, they acquired uh, Jerry Lucas uh, from the San Francisco Warriors. And then in November of 71, very early on in the season, they acquired Earl Monroe from the Baltimore Bullets, the team that had just beaten them in the uh, in the playoffs. Um, I don't think there was quite the fear over as there was in the Kevin Durant situation uh, earlier this year. Of course, that wasn't that was a lot of differences in that situation. But I, I do think the common thing uh, parallel in the fact that Earl Monroe, his reputation and his um, kind of how he was viewed after that going to like this power team of the Knicks and accepting a secondary role, how that sort of influenced how he was sort of seen as a player. It definitely had an influence, I think, especially because when you're when you're willing to take a backseat and sort of uh, play behind, uh, you know, and not always not be the premier player that he wasn't with the Bullets, it's uh, it it says a lot of. I think it always like people always think about that as sort of like a character uh, trait if you're willing to accept being a role player, sort of taking a lesser role to. to to compete for a championship or to play on a better team. So it, I think it's really cool that he did that. Um, and I mean, it ended up working out because they ended up making, a, you know, advancing very far in the playoffs that year, making the finals. But um, yeah, it's really interesting just to see like how, uh, how that trade works out and the Knicks, uh, you know, how he's willing to accept such a, you know, a different role, which is hard, especially for him who's, like, you know, mid-career and, you know, it's not like he's, like, uh, way past his prime or something. And he's yeah, he's so, still pretty young. Yeah, so it's, like, for him to be in that position where, you know, he's still relatively young and he has to to take a back seat, I think that, that says a lot. And it definitely, he's loved, like, by Knicks fans, too. Like, uh, people talk very fondly about him. Yeah, and obviously, you know, he had the incredible, um, just you know, the the incredible arsenal of moves, the shaking and baking, the ball handling and skills, and just the the, the trickery that he showed. You know, the, the the playground style game. I mean, obviously, he he showed a lot of that stuff. You know, playing in the uh, uh, playgrounds. I think he he was more he was famous more for the uh, Baker League in Philly. He he played in the record league as well, but. Um, but he definitely, you know, ha- had this style of, you know, in- incredible style of play and um, was an incredibly exciting guy. But he was going from this, you know, f- more freewheeling team from the uh, Bullets to a very, to a more conservative, structured Knicks team. There was worry from fans about you know, him and whether he and Clyde would be able to share the ball, whether he would be able to play that well. And Monroe was like, you know, like, yeah, I'm a basketball player. I can play that way. You know, I just... Yeah, I, I play this way because it's, it's the role that I'm asked, but I, I can play that way. And there were definitely some some adjustments that he had to struggle with. And and one of them in '72 was just he was he was dealing with some bad knees and some ankle problems, and he was limited to only 21.2 points a game and only averaged uh, 11.9 points per game. But you know, once they once '73 came along, they actually he he kind of got that starting role back, and then they started to. Um, you know, really, you know, form the legend that they would have as the Royals, Rolls Royce backcourt. But it, 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 there was some adjusting, and, and some of that I think was less him accepting a role than him just sort of, you know, being hurt and, and, and having to accept it. But, you know, they had the success that he had. But what, one thing that was important is that he didn't want to, when he went in, he was like, I want to come off the bench because I don't want to take Dick Barnett's place. I don't want to, you know, take him off the bench. And he eventually did replace Barnett as, as Barnett was getting older. But, you know, it was a sign that he was definitely willing to fit in and willing to accommodate the others to um to be successful it says a lot it says a lot about him and uh that's the stuff about him having to work with Clyde is just I guess it's the natural progression of sort of just trying to work out the kinks of of that whole chemistry and trying to work together on the court at the same time which is never it, it always sounds easy and especially when it's two players who are willing to pass the ball but it's always hard to get that first at the the first try it takes a lot of work it seems you you have to have a significant adjustment in the style that you play you're used to having the ball in your hands and then you suddenly don't it's um it's it's a big change and obviously he deserves a lot of credit for adjusting to it and for them to making it work i mean that they have a set a lot of talent so that helps but um but it it it, you know it, it obviously worked out marvelously um 
So the Lucas trade, they, um, they, the Knicks trade Kazi Russell, who had been a popular and successful player, important part of the first team to uh, the Warriors for for Jerry Lucas. And um, Lucas, you know, he had kind of been sort of like he was a had produced big numbers, but had not had much team success at all. You know, he really had a weak Royals team for the most part. Um, didn't really have a strong supporting guys other than, of course, Oscar Robertson. Um, and he later said that all those years in Cincinnati were pretty frustrating. I thought for the longest time that there was no way I would ever be in a championship club. He had also kind of developed some poor work habits and being out of shape. And he later kind of conceded that when he went to San Francisco and he said the last four years with the Royals, I didn't work as hard as I could have. Um, then it ended up after a year and a half in San Francisco uh, with not really much to, to show for it there. He ended up going to the Knicks and, and really helping kind of revive his career. Ended up having a big role with the team because um, Reed, as we mentioned, played only about 11 games that season, didn't really have much of a role. So he he was, he was had to step in and you know and, and played a bigger role than he expected, and he, he thrived. He was able to, to change from forward to center, which was a better position for him, and um, he was, was able to help uh, revive his career. He's also... Um, known for sort of being a little bit of an eccentric personality he had all these memory games where he just had this what you might call a photographic memory where he's able to like memorize like the first 500 pages of the manhattan phone directory would later like write a bunch of books including the memory book about uh you know learning how to memorize things definitely an interesting personality kind of a guy who gets a little bit forgotten today which is a little surprising because um he was such a character and such a and you know a top 50 player of all time but isn't necessarily a a guy who's necessarily like on the tip of the tongue tongue when you kind of are thinking about the legends of the 60s and 70s he's uh i mean he had a big time role with the knicks and uh and played such a big factor and and i guess maybe some of that stuff of not being on great teams and sort of early on in his career and not just putting like you know sometimes I think when players put up big numbers and the team doesn't do as well people sort of put them in this like uh, role where they're just oh you're just a guy who puts up numbers and you're not really about winning but I mean especially later in his career he had so much success so it's it's weird to see that he doesn't really get that much attention yeah, I, I think part of that might be because um, you know, he came on late to the team. And, you know, again, we, kind of the premise of the show is that the 70 team is so well regarded, but the 73 team doesn't quite have as much of a legend to it. And you know, the fact that he's part of the later team is just, you know, is kind of part of that uh, thing, despite the fact that, um, you know, obviously they had, a, they had a lot of success. But uh, there, was a, there was a really good, from uh, When the Garden Was Eden, Talking about uh, the the night that um, Monroe had been traded from the Bullets uh, to the Knicks, and he'd had a, like a kind of a big salary dispute with the uh, with the Bullets, and that was kind of an ugly situation. Where another time where kind of ownership was didn't really have the resources it needed to keep him, and um, and the team was kind of in a you know weird transition, so th- they had a difficult time. But um, so the uh, that was also the same night. It was the first time that. Uh, Kazzy Russell had played against the Knicks since being traded to Golden State. So, you know, Kazzy's in there and just, you know, it was strange for him coming as an opponent. And then the bench unit, which were known as the Minutemen, had broken up. And Monroe and Lucas were in a Knicks uniform. And it was a moment of saying, wow, this is really different. But at the same time, life teaches you to move on. So it was, you know, he was happy because he was actually, you know, he'd be kind of coming off the bench with the Knicks and going to the Warriors enabled him to have a bigger role and to score more. But, you know, he had some um, lingering regret over, you know, leaving. And Monroe kind of felt that a little bit later over leaving Baltimore, too. He kind of felt like when he went to the Knicks, it was somebody else's team. It was Clyde's team. Uh, when you have your own team, you know when you're going to take over games. You know when to feed people to keep them happy. Going to New York, I had to learn when to do that, even more when not to do stuff. So he did have a little bit of, like, you, you know, I mean, obviously he was happy. You know, he had a good career with the Knicks, and he won the championship and everything. But there was a little... There was at least part of him that kind of wondered how he would be seen and, you know, how things would have gone when he went to the Bulls, which, you know, is, is understandable. Yeah, definitely, to me, it makes sense. Um, so one other thing I think worth noting about this is that um, before he was traded to the Knicks, Monroe actually visited with the Indiana Pacers and the who were in the ABA and was thinking about signing with them. And he, he went to a game, and the Pacers won. And then went to the 
locker room and he you know he got along with everybody then he noticed that all the black players reached over the lockers and started bringing guns down he was shocked to see this and said why do you guys have guns and he said they've got the kkk everywhere around here outside indianapolis and in the city too so we got guns to protect ourselves which was basically like oh nope i'm not coming to indianapolis <laughs> yeah it's, that's a crazy crazy story that's uh yeah wow. The, the the guns in the locker room is mentioned in loose balls but it's more of like these guys kind of like were into like kind of the idea of be like being cowboys and they would carry around guns and you know just kind of be goofy and stuff the actual the the racial violence of it aspect either it wasn't mentioned at all either it wasn't known about or it wasn't just wasn't you know brought into the book but i um but i think it was actually from earl monroe's book which i haven't had a chance to, to read yet um obviously sort of an added fascinating aspect and, and obviously frightening aspect of uh basketball life during that time uh i i agree it's uh that's a scary thing to think about yeah as you mentioned, that 72 team, uh, they lost to the Lakers in the finals, the Lakers being the 69-win team, so not, not much of a uh, you know loss there. And so then, you know, they're, they're going into a 73 season. They put Earl Monroe into the starting lineup. They are a 57-win team. They have their fourth in the league of SRS, a stronger regular season team. And they're able to uh, beat the Lakers in the finals. They add um, Monroe to the starters with uh, with Reed, DeBusher, Bradley, and Frazier. Off the bench, they have Jackson, Lucas, Barnett, and also John Gianelli and Dean Meminger. They, you know, you other than, you know, those, of course, the, the 60 Celtics teams, I'm not sure how many teams have six Hall of Famers as a player's who are, you know, like the six main players plus two Hall of Fame coaches. Holzman, the coach of the team, and then Jackson, of course, would become a Hall of Famer as a coach. It's nearly impossible. I always feel like, especially like looking back on that, it's just, it sounds like it's impossible. It sounds like a dream because, I mean, to be that deep and to have that much talent on your team, it usually leads to championships or close to championships. So it, 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 just to see that they had all of those players and then also just that they all like worked well together i think that's the the bigger thing also is that we have all these great players but the chemistry is just perfect uh everything works out and they all play together uh it says a lot about how unique the situation is and how hard it is to really capture all of that together even when you have that much talent yeah, a- absolutely. And, and, you know, still adding new components to the team, too. I mean, obviously, by, by now, you know, this is the second season for um, for Lucas and Monroe. So they're, so they're more integrated as part of things. But that's a uh, you know, certainly a challenge to be able to integrate, integrate all those guys. Um, so one, you know, Reed and Lucas at this point are splitting time at center, which is a little tricky for both of them, both of them being used to being starters. But it, Reed had you know, talked about, you know, I had to accept it. You know, Red said, some nights will start, some you won't. And, you know, obviously the success was uh, good. Um, you know, for, for Bradley, um, said that for me, the most fun I ever had playing basketball was the 1973 team. So he had fond memories of the uh, team. And it's interesting to kind of set with Walt Frazier, who basically said that, you know, he remembers 1970 so well, but barely, or if at all, remembers uh, 1973, particularly the uh, the finals, which they would, you know, win the championship in Los Angeles. And there will be none of, not necessarily the level of hoopla that they had, you know, winning it in such, you know, such a, such a, game and such an atmosphere in 1970 winning at home in game seven i think that's the biggest reason why it's uh why they feel that way is just the situation i think a game seven at home versus a, a, a four to one win was just i think that's like a big reason why they're why there is that feeling that the 1971 is such a much more important one i think because it always feeds into like this idea of like a narrative of like a story that uh, sounds like great to to read or listen to when it's being told, uh, versus oh we lost the first game but then we won four. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to boil it down like that, yeah. Yeah. So the Knicks this season they had a lot of comebacks. Um, regular season game early on in the season November seventy two they were down eighty six to sixty eight to the Bucks at home. 
but they scored the final 19 points in five minutes and 11 seconds to uh, win the game one of the most uh, dramatic uh, comebacks in uh nba history so more of a footnote than anything but uh it's sort of a very famous regular season game and i i believe that's the biggest comeback at that point of the game in nba history i mean it was certainly would if it's not the the most it certainly would have to be up there because that's almost impossible and especially in the pre three-point era to be able to do that is pretty amazing wait how could that in 511 it must have been a lot of fast breaks because uh i can't imagine that happened they ended up beating the uh, Bullets in the Eastern Conference semifinals, and they actually faced the Bullets um, every year from uh, 69 through 74. And they won uh, five of those matches, I'm only losing once, of course, in uh, 71. Um, and uh, the NBA had actually adopted a new playoff this year where the regular season record would determine home court in the playoffs, not their seed. So... The Bullets were the second seed because they won the division, but the Knicks had home court because they had a, they had a better record, which um, changed the playoff system that was kind of wacky because for a while um, the, the 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 two teams in the top two teams in the division would make the playoffs no matter the record. So you would have a a case of like much worse teams from one division uh, making it over much better teams from another division just because of you know the alignment issues that they had. I mean, obviously they. You know there are still some things like that with um, playoff seating today. You know when when the, when there's conference imbalance, but um, it's a it's a much different case of like a you know a, a high 40s win team not making the playoffs versus you know what usually happens where like a low 40s win team gets cut off uh, because of situations like that. So uh, anyway, the Knicks won the series fairly easy. It wasn't necessarily a memorable series, but they had some battles with the uh, Bullets and the fact that they faced off six years in a row in the. Uh, Eastern Conference playoffs, you know, it's one thing for that to happen in a league where there's only eight teams, but at this point there were like 17 teams. So um, interesting that they continued to, to face off in the Knicks, obviously, for the most part, getting the better of that rivalry. And uh, Earl Monroe playing against his former team, that must have also added to the uh, battle and, and much uh, attention it would, uh, it would uh, have because of just how much uh, he didn't want to be there after his issues with the team over uh, his uh, his issues with uh, the bullets. So that, that definitely must have added some fuel to the fire. Uh, yeah, I believe there were uh, Benedict Monroe signs um, up so uh, d- during that series. So the, the, yeah, the fans were not so quick to forgive him. Um, and then that obviously that law like losing him probably changed the fortunes of the franchise. I mean, I, I mean they may have moved to Washington anyway. I mean he, he was popular but not necessarily like a transcendent star and you know like where keeping him wouldn't necessarily keep the team in the city but um you know it, it certainly you know it had to have at least some effect so um the uh then the knicks beat the celtics in the eastern conference finals uh Depending on your point of view, I, I discussed this with Bob Ryan uh, when we talked about the mid-70s Celtics, but depending on your point of view, either the Knicks had such a dramatic, furious comeback in uh, Game 4, uh, beating the Celtics in double overtime, or uh, the Celtics were cheated by some uh, refs who, uh, who unfortunately, emotions got the better of them and took it away from the uh, Celtics. So we'll let the listeners decide, but... Um, the Knicks came back big in this game. They were down 17 uh, points in the third quarter, and then uh, Frazier hit a fallaway jumper with 11 with 17 seconds left in the fourth to tie the game. Then uh, Phil Jackson uh, tied the game at the first overtime, had two uh, free throws to send to a second overtime, and then due to injuries and foul outs, the entire second overtime for the Knicks was played by Walt Frazier, DeBusher, Henry Bibby, uh, Gianelli, who was a rookie center, and uh, and and Phil Jackson, um, Jackson had a stole the ball from JoJo White and had a big layup to open the period, and then they uh, Gianelli was able to draw Dave Cowan to six foul, and then the Knicks ended up winning the game by a seven. Uh, Celtics coach Tom Heinsohn uh, felt the berated the referees for what he thought was a bunch of unfair calls against the team. So, um. At, at that point, they were up three to one, but then they uh, then the Celtics battled back despite not having uh, John Havlicek for or actually Havlicek sort of being in and out with uh, injury, um, and they uh, they lost games five and six, and they were headed back to Boston for Game Seven in, in Boston Garden, where the the Celtics had never lost a Game Seven. 
However, the uh, the Celtics were able to come back. Uh, Dean Meminger um, actually uh, came in for uh, Monroe and played really well. To, uh, helped give the Knicks an early lead. And then uh, DeBusher was able to uh, defend uh, Cowens pretty well. And then Lucas and Reed came in the second half to, and even did even better. And then eventually the... Uh, the Knicks held on to the win, which uh, Red Holzman later recalled the uh, most satisfying of his career. Uh, Frazier had 25 points and 10 rebounds in that game for in 47 um, minutes of play. So a big win to hold off, uh, you know, rising, talented, young Celtics team that was obviously that was going to be primed to be a great team you know, over the next few years. Anytime you beat the Celtics, uh, it's definitely something to be proud of and to be happy about because Boston, especially throughout you know, the Russell era and uh, leading into this new one, um, as they started bringing up, bringing up, as they still were one of the best teams in uh, basketball. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, it's actually remarkable how quickly they kind of um, were able to recalibrate themselves. But, you know, the, the Knicks and the Celtics, I believe they would play three years ago in the playoffs with the Knicks winning the first two and then the uh, Celtics knocking them off in 74. So this at this point they go to the uh, they're facing the Lakers again in the uh, finals for the third time in four years. Uh, both teams are aging. Uh, Jerry West is thirty five, Will Chamberlain thirty six, Dick Barnett is thirty six, and then DeBusher, Reed, Bradley, and Lucas are all in their early thirties, which is you know older in basketball standards then than it is today. And then uh, by winning this series and by beating the Boston in the East Finals, Boston actually was a sixty eight win team. Um, they were the first team to beat 60-win squ- squads en route to a championship in the playoffs. So, fun fact for them. Um, the, the In Game 1, the uh, the Knicks um, lost Game 1 in Los Angeles. They had beaten the Celtics on a Sunday, and then they had to face the uh, Lakers on a Tuesday. Um, the, the Knicks had requested the delay to the start of the finals until Wednesday, but the Lakers said no way. Um, and yeah, the, the Knicks basically, uh, or the Lakers basically smoked the Knicks, uh, during, uh, for most of the game, um, Chamberlain had seven blocks and, um, the Lakers did jump out to a huge lead. Eventually the Knicks did sort of, uh, make it close, but, um, but the Lakers were able to hold on in the end. Um, however, that was it. The, uh, the Knicks, uh, came back in game two. They were able to play better defense and basically slow down the Lakers fast break that had led them to so much success. Um, you know, even after shooting struggles in game three from Bill Bradley and, and Busher, they, uh, were able to kind of survive that, um, West had two strained hamstrings to slow him down. Chamberlain was slowing down at this point. This would be his, um, he would retire after this uh, season. Actually, he would try to defect the, jump to the ABA and play, but uh, a contract obligation forced him to only be able to coach the team, which is a situation we will discuss in the future uh, over and back uh, basketball mysteries of the 70s. But the, so the, the Knicks were able to sort of grind that one out and they won another close one in, uh, in game four, winning 103 to 98, which sets a, uh, game five in the uh, forum, uh, a, uh, a, another tough one, but the Knicks, uh, able to, uh, win down the stretch, despite DeBusher going out in the fourth period with a sprained ankle. And then, uh, Earl Monroe came in the clutch. Uh, we, he scored eight points over the final uh, two minutes to, uh, finish and the, the Knicks won 102 to 93 and were able to uh, seal that uh, championship. And actually, I believe, um, there was not footage of that game available for, um, many years, but recently, like in, within the last five years, it was, uh, rediscovered again in uh like somebody had a reel of it and it's able to be it's able to be viewed now after um all these years which is kind of a neat thing and i guess maybe the fact that no one could see that game almost immediately after that game was played maybe adds a little bit to just it not being available means not as you know talked about or as mythologized as um as the 70 tape which obviously is much more readily available i think there's some truth to that I think that also what's really interesting is just that the like in that that series, just the Knicks, the four wins were a, a relative like they were all single digit victories. So it's really cool that that they won all these close games in uh, after losing the first game, and uh, so weird you don't see that a lot. So I thought that was really. I don't I don't even know how to describe it. That's yeah, so, it's it's unusual for that many. Um, yeah, for the, the all five were, were very close games. Uh, the, the the 
furthest margin was nine in the final game. The rest were five or less. So that's obviously pretty impressive. Interesting that that Willis Reed got the Finals MVP. Although I don't know if there's really a player who like absolutely you could say definitely deserves it on the uh, team. Um, uh, although. Um, Frazier played 230 minutes versus Reed's 150 minutes in the uh, series, and um, their the stat lines were similar, so there isn't necessarily one of those that stand out. But um, you could, I guess, Frazier, yeah, you you definitely could argue he he was hosed in the 1970 uh, Finals MVP after he had that great game, but was overshadowed by uh, you know Reed's um, dramatic entrance but um you know maybe you could say the same in 73 as well the, the i guess reed was kind of the choice by default because it was nec- everyone i mean the 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 point averages were 18.6 for bradley 16.6 for frazier 16.4 for reed 16.0 for monroe and 15.6 for debusher so you know four guys or five guys you know with basically even production on that end it, it's it's what stood out about that team throughout that whole run is just they had so many different guys who could score and it made for for a very tricky decision or I guess not not very tricky since Willis Reed got uh, the MVP both times. <laughs> I think it was you know or a petition thing and obviously the people who vote on it's all the series and I didn't so they have a better uh, I I only have the numbers to go by and in, in some limited uh, you know other things but. Anything else you want to uh, talk about as, as far as this next dynasty goes? Um, they would kind of have one more pretty strong year in 74. They would um, finish uh, fifth in the league with 49 wins and fifth in SRS as well, lose to the Celtics in Eastern Conference Finals fairly handily, and that would be about it. Uh, Reed and DeBusher and Lucas would retire, and they would kind of move on to a new era with uh, like Bob McAdoo and Spencer Haywood trying to bring those high-priced guys in, that not really working out. And then, uh, you, you know, what, what kind of stands out to you as far as, you know, the, the, the Knicks team goes and, you know, and where it's the special place that it has in the hearts of Knicks fans? What stands out to me is that it's such a unique roster with so much talent. I think that's what stands out. The Knicks have never had that kind of group of talent since that since that time. Because even with, during the Patrick Ewing years, um, and even the Bernard King before that little stretch in the 80s when he was dom- he was a dominant player, they've never really had great overall talent. You think of John Starks or Charles Oakley as the supporting players or Bill Cartwright as you know, a supporting player to Bernard King. And, like, they're good players. They're, like, fringe all-stars, guys who might have made one or two all-star teams. And they're, like, okay. But it, they were... The the Knicks have never really had uh, a, a, a collective of stars to play together like they had with uh, Frazier and Reed and DeBusher, three, like... All, also, the guys who are all stars every year, and um, and you know you also have people like Monroe, and then you have Jerry Lucas who was an all star in the other place before. Uh, like you have all of these guys who've uh, had accomplished careers throughout their time in the NBA before they get to the to that point of even winning the championship in 1973. So I think that's what stands out the most is just that collective of talent and. Finding a way to make it all work because just the Knicks have always been. It's always important to get the star. I think that obviously is always important. So getting that Carmelo or getting Patrick Ewing or or getting Bernard King, getting that first player is obviously the most important part. But you also have to surround your best players with a cast worthy of good chemistry and good fit, but also like quality talent too that they can. That the other player is not the superstar is not taxed or the or the semi superstar is not taxed too much and asked to do too much and we've seen throughout all of these these runs that the Knicks have had with other eras is just either Patrick Ewing is too taxed. I mean the Knicks like rely over relied on him especially during a time when teams literally only posted up a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> um, so it. it you know, like, they relied on Patrick doing so much. And then we even see with the, this current Knicks era that the Knicks over-rely on Carmelo Anthony uh, offensively too much. And 
Um, and, you know, even when Bernard King, Bernard King single-handedly won them a playoff series against Detroit when they had, uh, and Isaiah Thomas, that, that first-round series they played, I forget what year it was. But I think it was 84. 84. So they, you know, they, they've always had these situations where they're over-relying on a superstar. But in, in the case of the 1970s Knicks, they weren't over-relying. No one was stretching themselves too thin. It was always a group of guys who played together and all of them had enough talent and the trust in their teammates that they knew that they didn't have to do too much or overstep uh, their bounds to, to, you know, for the team to win. They just had to play well as a team, as a group, as a collective to win. Yeah. I think that stands out the most to me. Yeah, and it's it's very, you know, feels very Spurs-esque, you know, this is sort of a modern example of, of that kind of spirit and that kind of having the sacrificing superstar and, and the guys who more about, you know, like the team success than, than the numbers. And obviously Spurs have had on it for a long time. And, you know, they, they had Tim Duncan, who, you know, is a, you know, bona fide all-time, you know, probably top 10 player of all time. The Knicks had some very good players but and some, some top 50 players, but no one quite that good. I think the spirit of it is definitely there, and that's certainly a you know. I mean, it's hard to build a team that way too, because it's hard to get a bunch of good players together who want to sacrifice and who want to play well and who you know just have the understanding of the game and the the complementary. I mean, they had the Knicks had such smart, you, you know, secure players, guys who were secure in their own skin and willing to you know not worry about things that were you know, more than just winning you know not that they didn't have their problems like everyone does but they you know for the most part they were able to you know kind of overcome it and were mature and were grown-ups and were just guys who um you know ha- had a good attitude and and played hard and played well and uh, and played together so so anyway thanks everyone for uh, checking us out we really appreciate uh following along with our basketball mysteries of the 1970s series hopefully you're enjoying it uh follow us on twitter and facebook both of them are at over and back nba and uh, leave us a rating and review if you want to on itunes um or stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast and uh, you can find us at harvardparoxism.com and uh, thanks for checking us out and until next time see you again This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.